talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie-by-movie movie and television series-by-television series, series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're taking another look at Thor Ragnarok, released in October 2017, when, it's safe to say, it did slightly better than American Satan. I'm Tim Worthington, and I'll have plenty to say about Thor Ragnarok shortly. Meanwhile, joining me to give his thoughts on Thor Ragnarok is journalist Mick Wright. Mick, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me for now at Broken Bottle Boy on Twitter. How long will this last? Who knows? And also brokenbottleboy.substack.com, which is a media criticism newsletter I write. So maybe go there. That might last longer. OK, so before we go any further, Mick, what happens in Thor Ragnarok? Well, it's a little while after the Battle of Sokovia. I think it's two years after the Battle of Sokovia. And we open with Thor imprisoned by the fire demon Serta. And a brilliant scene where he's spinning around on a <laughs> on a big chain. Thor obviously ends up freeing himself. There's some excellent Led Zeppelin usage. And then Thor returns to Asgard to find that Loki has been posing as Odin. That's another extremely fun scene. And that uh, his father is missing. So they head to New York to meet with Stephen Strange in a classic crossover moment and find out where Odin is. Turns out Odin's nearly died. Odin dies in the weird way that Asgardian gods seem to, which is just to become shiny glitter to space dust and at that moment Hela the sister that Thor and Loki didn't know they had breaks out of her prison comes and confronts Loki and Thor destroys Mjolnir Thor's hammer and sends them spinning off from the Bifrost and they end up at Sakaar which is a kind of like junk covered planet where a scrapper scrapper 142 who we later discover is Valkyrie but we don't know it at that point captures Thor and takes him to the Grand Master and he is put in the fighting arena, which is sort of like Roman Colosseum, and finds himself face to face with his old friend, the Hulk. Hulk has been missing for ages, gone into deep space on the Quinjet before, and has been seen there being Hulk pretty much nonstop for the two years. So many other things happen, though. It goes like <laughs> I could go on now. Many things happen. They meet Korg, who is an excellent Kiwi accented rock monster, and his weird friend, Meek, who've been trying to stage a revolution, but it didn't go well for them. But yeah, it's a caper, this film. It's an absolute caper. It's it's Flash Gordon-esque, is the way I always think of it. But in the end, they defeat the Grandmaster, get off the planet, Thor reconciles with Loki, and the Asgardians basically don't have a planet anymore, and they're on a large spaceship. And in the mid-credits scene, an even larger spaceship appears, and we know who that is. OK, well, I'm not going to ask you what you knew about any of the characters in it beforehand, even Topaz, because I think we know that you're familiar with all of them. So what I'm going to ask instead is, Mick, what did you know about Taika Waititi before you saw? this well i was pretty familiar with what we do in the shadows the film 
and I had also seen Wilder People, I think I'd seen. Not much else. That was pretty much, I knew that he was connected to what we do in the shadows folk, and I'd seen one, maybe two of his independent films he'd made. This really did break him into being a huge name, I think, anyway. I think you're absolutely right, because I wasn't really that familiar with him at all before this, but obviously he's become such a big name that, you know, things like Free Guy was more or less sold on the fact that he was acting in it, above and beyond the actual stars of it. And it is interesting, something we've both discussed is that it was at that point doing something new in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it's kind of almost, it's cast a very long shadow. Not everything seems to have fallen into that template, but it's made the things that don't seem a bit not part of the gang. I think that's why the Falcon and the Winter Soldier in particular got such a rough ride, because it's not got any of, you know, that element of pop culture where humour in it, or that pacing. Despite the fact that I love it, I kind of find the effect it's had a bit of a mixed bag, really. Yeah, I think it maybe has been too dominant. Certainly in the TV arena, you can feel its influence there in stuff like Ms. Marvel and She-Hulk. I think there's a lot of the Ragnarok idea of things like, you know, the semi-awareness of that it's a film almost. Obviously, She-Hulk was always kind of a meta property in its comic book form as well so fair dues to that but the colourfulness yeah because I think prior to Ragnarok apart from the sort of cul-de-sac of Guardians of the Galaxy there was a kind of sort of dark palette to Marvel films that had been growing over time and I think this just suddenly like you know like an ink bomb goes off and there's just all this colour and you're right that is spread around into the other films and into the way the other films work I think a little bit and yeah maybe there's too much of it now I know that the response to the latest Thor was not you know some people did not enjoy it as much Love and Thunder I really enjoyed it but I went to watch it with my 12 year old stepdaughter and I think that was the right audience for it because it made sense to her and the way that it did the way that it looked at sexualities and found families and made families and stuff really appealed to her and I think maybe to some older people it doesn't and I know we're trying to talk about Ragnarok but I think that I almost felt that Love and Thunder was like Ragnarok even more he was even more off the leash for it but it is interesting because even when it's dark that film even when there are dark moments in Ragnarok they're always undercut and sometimes I think that that can almost be a bit of a cop out and there was a certain element to having like the god butcher in Love and Thunder and the crash between the darkness of him as a character and the rest of that film is quite interesting and I wonder whether there's a problem with Taika in some respects where he can't or certainly in the Marvel films he can't commit himself to sticking in the like pain or the dark moment he has to undercut it all the time maybe that's a problem well I think that one thing that was possibly coincidental but is very significant is literally around the time this came out was when the move started to happen towards moving all the TV shows as Disney Plus I mean when you look at it that's when I know there were further series and Netflix shows were effectively cancelled at that point Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was being wound down the ABC series were being basically called to a halt again it's possibly coincidence what's interesting is in all of those you've got that very different I mean you mentioned the colour palette that's been going on in the Netflix series in particular you got that they all look like not kind of like security footage but you know they're shot like The Wire or something but given their own unique colour palette you know with 
Daredevil, it's a lot of primary colours. With the Punisher, there's an absence of colour, basically. Jessica Jones got that blue washed out look. Luke Cage very vibrant and yellows. And Iron Fist has got that sort of hazy look. But they're all predicated on a look that I don't think you get now. And I think it's significant that as glad as I am to see Daredevil back, they've kind of pulled him in a more Ragnarokki direction than She-Hulk. And the very fact that, I mean, obviously they're all going to show up in an 18-part series called Daredevil Born Again. The very fact it's called Born Again and they're kind of making him into a slightly lighter character beforehand indicates to me that when we see those characters again, they will be towing the new party line a little more. Yeah, because I think basically it comes down to saying Disney always wants the largest possible audience. And the thing about the Netflix shows was they, by their nature, could not have the largest possible audience because you can't have the young teens watch those shows. Like, you just can't because those shows are really bloody and brutal. So when Daredevil appeared in She-Hulk, I just had to quickly quickly explain to myself who Daredevil is in the background because you can't exactly watch that show because it's pretty brutal. And maybe that's the thing with Ragnarok is the Ragnarok has it's an interesting recipe because it gives you the action and the adventure and the darkness and a sense of stakes, but they're relatively low even as it tells you they're very big because, of, you know, Ragnarok is like a destruction of the world and yet this is a pretty light, funny, like knockabout adventure film. Yes, and I think it's interesting that something I keep coming back to is that Taika Waititi's pitch for it was that he sent them a compilation of clips from Big Trouble in Little China with Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin over the top. It was basically, I'd make it like this. And, you know, Big Trouble in Little China is a fun film. It has its dark moments. Immigrant Song is rocking, but people, I think, forget now that in the kind of termination to shoehorn everything in the classic rock bracket, Led Zeppelin, there's a lot of sense of the macabre to a lot of their work. There is that in there. There's, even in his initial vision, there's that light and shade. Yeah, and I guess the other thing to take into account is, of course, that Marvel products generally are not a director-led medium. So the extent to which Taika Waititi's influence is obviously huge on this, but then overall, you know, there is Kevin Feige at the top of it. And, you know, that kind of brain trust creating a kind of consistency there. So, you know, you can't put all the choices on him either. And that's interesting in itself in that this was obviously relatively director-led, but it worked. When you look at the other movies and TV shows where the directors have a bit too much control, I mean, we won't even talk about Iron Fist, but I suppose with the original Hulk film, it was more that the star had too much control. But there's also, well, Thor The Dark World, where Alan Taylor didn't appear to understand that he was making something as part of a bigger franchise. As much as I loved Eternals, that was very much driven by Chloe Zhao, and it had a very mixed reception, shall we say. But this is the one that absolutely worked. I don't think I've ever seen or heard anyone utter a bad word about it. No, because I think it was refreshing. I think it came out and it was very refreshing. And also, all the parts in Ragnarok work very well. It just functions through it. It's very smooth in the way it moves from act to act. It's kind of like a selection box. It's always giving you a different taste. You know, there's a lot of interesting little bits to snack on in there, whether you look at, you know, Jeff Goldblum as a grandmaster is a fantastic character because he arrives fully rounded in that first scene, you know, where he appears, where Thor goes along on that kind of weird little roller coaster thing that introduces the planet and what the deal with the grandmaster. And then at the end of it, there's Jeff Goldblum and he's just fully eats the scene. An interesting Taika Waititi thing is, of course, the like enforcer of the Grandmaster is a Maori person from New Zealand who Taika Waititi had worked with before. She's fantastic. There's so many little characters in it that leave an impression on your mind that are outsized to their presence in the film. Absolutely. I mean, one of the standouts for me is Scourge. That could have been 
such a dumb functional role. But he's given gravitas as well as mining his stupidity for humour and his vanity and his greed. And ultimately, he comes good. But it isn't made into a big redemption arc thing. It's just the moment appears, he thinks, I'd better do that. Yeah, it's really cleverly done. And I really like the way there are so many additional small details in it. Like you mentioned, the it's little more than a cameo from Doctor Strange, really, who basically tells them off for being on Earth without his permission, then sends them on their way. There's Hela looking through Odin's collection, sees the wrong Infinity Gauntlet from an earlier film, and says, that's a fake. All kinds of things like that. There's the hologram of Black Widow in the Quinjet. And you forget all those things are in there, because the actual, the scale that the main thrust of the narrative and the visuals work on is so large. Yeah, and there are jokes I think about a lot, like where Thor's trying to unlock the Quinjet and keeps saying, strongest Avenger. Or the, in some ways I wish they hadn't put it in the trailer, because it was one of my favourite bits in the film as a kind of surprise is when Thor sees Hulk in the arena and says I know him he's a friend from work it's great and as a like a reboot of the Thor character it's incredible it's just this awareness that Chris Hemsworth has this comic ability that hasn't been drawn upon in the previous films and it just really nails that gets this performance out of him that is just perfect while not turning him into a he's not like ludicrous he just becomes more likeable while keeping the character coherent that's a big achievement that people now you just sort of act like oh well of course that would happen but at the time after the first two Thor films it just didn't seem very likely that Thor would be made you know into such an interesting character not just the first two Thor films but also you know his appearances in the Avengers he hadn't really been anything too great in those no and he had been outshone by Loki really although the two of them always worked well together I think it's no surprise that Loki was such a runaway success of a character with audiences because there were those two sides to him from the outset there was the villainy but there was the anti-hero angle as well the idea that as we'll come back to when there is a bigger threat he's suddenly on the right side and this is the first time that they're actually equals really I think it's because because of that that we've ended up with I mean, how brilliant was Loki the series but I don't think it would have happened without Ragnarok because it gave Loki that opportunity to develop that extra edge that made him into a viable star of his own vehicle yeah I agree with you I think the thing is it meant that Loki almost has to work harder in Ragnarok because he has to bounce off Thor and Thor is a character who's going to bounce back at him rather than sort of be just a foil for him because that's really the case in the first two films is that Thor is very much the foil for Loki really whereas you get more of a dance in this when they're going to try and steal the ship and <laughs> they do the get help and he's like I don't want to do get help Loki I thought the world of you I thought we were going to fight side by side forever but at the end of the day you're you and I'm me I don't know maybe they're still good in you but let's be honest our paths diverged a long time ago Yeah. It's probably for the best that we never see each other again. That's what you always wanted. Hey, let's do get help. What? Get help. No. Come on, you love it. I hate it. It's great. It works every time. It's humiliating. Do you have a better plan? No. We're doing it. We are not doing get help. Get help! Please! My brother's dying! Get help! Help him! Classic. Oh, still hate it. 
It's humiliating. No, not for me, it's not. I love that as well. I, things like that are great because of this. It's like, you know, when Thor likes to bring up the fact that Loki used to turn into a snake, but then the payoff in that being, and he knew I loved snakes. I really enjoy where they hint at or give a sense of all these other adventures and interactions that Loki and Thor have had over the years that we haven't seen. And that's something that the Marvel Cinematic Universe can be very good at, both doing it in a way that, you know, if you're a comic book reader, you get like hints of things that you will be aware of, but also just doing it in this way of saying, we don't show you literally everything and here are some things that we can reference that you haven't actually seen. It's great because it gives it a richness that wouldn't be there otherwise. I also really like the way, kind of it's almost the reverse mirror image, I suppose, of the insistence on undercutting everything. The way that even the most comical characters are given the line that's a joke, but that really gives them some depth. The main one that really gets me every time is Korg saying, you referenced him trying to start a revolution, but he couldn't get it off the ground because we didn't print enough pamphlets. And while that's funny, it also shows that he actually meant it, that he went to all the trouble of, you know, <laughs> I know he sounds a bit like the man in the, from the message boards column in Private Eye with his pamphlets, but he went to the extent of producing and distributing pamphlets and didn't have enough, and that's where he thinks he fell down. I mean, they took out, apparently they weren't forced to take out, but any actual references to Valkyrie, you know, overt bisexual references. But there are hints of, you know, there's her sort of drunkenly eyeing up women and so on, and that gives her a bit more depth than just, you know, another Asgardian. And I think what they did with Valkyrie, full stop, was really interesting, because I'm sure quite a few people listening won't be familiar with her in the comics, where she's basically a very hefty, blonde Asgardian who's spent most of her time fighting alongside the Defenders, and wasn't really the same sort of character that they've made her into the movies. It does feel a bit like they kind of drew on what they knew Tessa Thompson would be good at there as well. The energy that Tessa Thompson has makes that character work really well. You're right, talking about not making her bisexuality explicit but implicit is one of those annoying things in Marvel generally, in that allowing, you know, having it set up so that segments can be cut out so that it all fly in China or Russia is deeply frustrating because they get a lot of marketing and press attention from talking about being very progressive but they do sort of build it as a unit that can be pulled out of the film less so of course in Love and Thunder which I think is interesting about the kind of effect of Ragnarok because I think they saw with Ragnarok actually we can do these things and it works and they kind of let Tiger with it go a bit further in Love and Thunder which I think is good but again I've never seen the Chinese cut (laughs) I'd be amazed if a lot of the stuff that was in the US or American cuts exists in the Chinese cut. I think and we will come back to this when we talk about the post credit scenes as a kind of would you call it a wind down or a wind up before the whole Infinity War Endgame saga it really really works there were a lot of great films before that but obviously there's a lot of up and down in it and I know we got Black Panther in between and a you know season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and so on but this is the one that feels like almost a warning of what's about to come. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. I think Black Panther injected a lot of good energy into the film series as well. I think I often think of Ragnarok and Black Panther as the two required elements that you needed to make the jump into the Infinity War endgame duo because it's almost like they're the darkness and the light in a way or the kind of the humour and the stakes because actually both of them have that because I think Black Panther's interesting because there's a lot of humour in Black Panther as well while still managing to have the dark and grittiness that you want in that obviously Ragnarok in that mid credit end credit where Thanos' ship arrives it is the literal saying here it comes this 
is going to happen. What's peculiar about that, though, is I remember when I went to see this in the cinema, you know, we didn't really know what was coming, how big the stakes were going to be. And in that mid credit scene, I remember people's reaction was kind of, ooh, like, you know, it was just setting up another Thor and Loki adventure. What fun are they going to have this time? And it leads immediately into, well, in terms of storyline, the opening of Avengers Infinity War, where the whole, not just the ship is on fire, the fire in the ship is on fire. <laughs> Loki, he gets some quips in there, but he's the one who, although he knows they've lost from the start, even more than Thor does, I think, he's also the one that says, I assure you, brother, the sun will shine on us again one day, indicating, you know, there is still some hope there, but that's such a bleak scene to follow on directly story-wise what was essentially a bit of a laugh at the end of a very funny film yeah no that is true I mean I when I was watching it in the cinema I was certain that that but then I was like I'm sure that's Thanos so I don't know I kind of thought oh that's got to be Thanos now just because we're on the notion of thinking about Thanos just think about villains generally what I think is interesting about Ragnarok is it manages to have two good villains because the Grandmaster and Hela are just very good villains and in the twin plots they both stand up well and I think we'd had a while where villains weren't that good and particularly Thor had had a run of like he's you know the villains in the previous two films were just not very good so that was quite redeeming for the Thor series at least to have two or probably the best villains in the series so far in a single film was pretty good and they also made great use of Mark Ruffalo as Bruce Banner because after the first Avengers movie he kind of plays almost literally in Iron Man 3 he turns up in the post credit scene indicating he's not been listening to Tony Stark I think he doesn't get as much to do as he should do in Age of Ultron but that's because they did the very odd thing with him plot wise here he's given so much to do he's the fish out of water in the whole situation dealing with all these not just the crazy ass guardians but you know the Grandmasters people as well it's a stealth Hulk film isn't it because they couldn't do another standalone Hulk film due to I believe to do with rights issues with is it universal i think so it was cleverly done because it is a stealth hulk film in a way it's a way to do the comics world war hulk but you know slightly twisted i thought it was very cleverly done and in a way perhaps the reason it's the best thor film is because it's it belongs in the marvel cinematic universe's ensemble films it's a guardians of the galaxy style film where you know we have a crazy team come together or something in the line of like the first avengers film where the stakes didn't feel quite as big as they ended up getting but that team up thing is something that it surprises me it took Marvel as long as it did to get to properly. I mean, we now got it in She-Hulk with Daredevil turning up. That thing of the comics where, you know, you could have that on a monthly or weekly basis where you have team-ups and it didn't need ages to have it put together is quite a good thing. And obviously Ragnarok, you know, showed how to do that before. And then when you look at Spider-Man and Stephen Strange coming together, that feels like that wouldn't have happened maybe as soon if Ragnarok hadn't effectively put together Hulk and Thor in the way that maybe I'm over thinking that but I do think there's something to it no I think you're absolutely right because there is more of a swing in that direction just before Infinity War and Endgame because early on it doesn't really happen you've got I suppose Captain America the Winter Soldier counts because that's mainly about him and Natasha really and then you know there's a bit of that not happening very much you get things like Ant-Man which is very much removed from everything else that's going on but if you look at the few films leading up to this obviously you've got Captain America Civil War which is kind of well I suppose a stealth Avengers movie really 
really only they're split into two you've got Iron Man is in much more a Spider-Man homecoming than you remember really obviously the second Guardians of the Galaxy film and they were clearly clearly although Doctor Strange doesn't fit that template sort of experimented with that a bit more ahead of the two big team up movies I feel like in a way they'd also maybe started to realise that often the big joke that people would make is well why can't for instance Iron Man call any of the other Avengers when he's having a problem and I think they were starting to sort of go well we need to do less of that because it's a bit stupid at a certain point to just go oh yeah they were all off planet for this one although that obviously is always the answer with Captain Marvel they just go oh she was off planet alright fine yeah whatever it's just because you don't want to overpower this film there's a whole thing to be discussed about power levels as well that's one thing that's always driven me a bit crazy and actually something about that in the fight between Hulk and Thor is that the power levels in these films are so inconsistent I always have been in Marvel comics generally but it's an interesting one that the powers you know go up and down depending on plot requirements I think you're absolutely right about that I mean you've got things like in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier how come Batroc is suddenly because as far as unless I've missed something really obvious he is not one of the new super soldiers how is he running rings around Sam Wilson physically yeah he might not have all of his tech but he's got some of his tech with him that is an actual an issue sometimes I know it's only people like us that really notice it but it can be jarring when you do realise it the way you get around that is by plotting at speed like making sure nothing slows down if you allow the viewer to think for too long you sort of go well hang on I mean that was a problem in Captain America Civil War as well because you look at the relative power levels of some people in that and you go well eh you know that battle would go very differently yeah that battle between Thor and Hulk I guess it is one of those things like comic but nerd thing of going well who would win in a battle between the Hulk and Thor and it's like Hulk is like a you know a city destroying level of power and like sometimes he's not I bet people used to write in all the time though I mean I've been trying recently to remember what the letters page is like particularly in Marvel UK comics where I remember even as a like very young child thinking some of the letters were ridiculous another Marvel publication as it was at the time thinking about Doctor Who magazine the Matrix data bank people forever writing in I always use as a joke asking who would win out of the Daleks and the Cybermen <laughs> it's not a question you can actually answer and so they would always fudge it by saying well the Daleks have better spaceships and so on the more advanced weapons so they win a war if it's a physical fight it's probably the Cyberman they are obsessed with pitting characters against each other when there is no reason to well yeah it's true I mean if you want to be over logical about any of these films you destroy them you have to sort of look at the logic of the world and say well does it seem relatively consistent and I guess in a way you only have to be broadly consistent with the universe but very consistent within a film as long as you're consistent within the film it's fine it's interesting though just as a diversion about power levels that whatever they have got set up for the next big movies obviously in the Infinity Saga they held Captain Marvel back until the last moment because before Thanos had all the stones she could have stopped him I think that's also the reason behind the fact that Nathan Fillion was sort of cast as Wonder Man for the second Guardians of the Galaxy film and then they changed plans because you know he's got very high power levels as well he's on his way as is Nova as is Adam Warlock all of whom on their own could have just like glowered at Thanos a bit and stopped him so you'd like to think they must have something that would be a challenge to the four of them even combined coming up I mean I think I know which big bad it's going to be but that is going to be a bit of a game changer having 
four individuals that powerful. Yeah, and then the problem becomes if you have four individuals that powerful, then you're less powerful heroes. You're increasing the number of people who are, you know, Natasha's and Clint's, really, in comparison to these ultra-powerful beings. And that's difficult because you want to have your whole gang have some reason to do things. I can kind of imagine now. You know, whatever happens in Avengers Kang Dynasty, then there's this big line-up and then Iron Fist say, hello, I am also here. Yeah, present but not involved, I am <laughs> But overall, I think Ragnarok is absolutely tremendous. It's one of the movies that I would recommend to anyone who's, you know, doesn't know these characters, hasn't seen any of the films. I think it's not something you need to be immersed in continuity and backstory to get involved in. Yes, there is the Hulk turns up, but literally it is the bloody Hulk is there as a surprise. You know, you don't really need to know. Although they do explain that he came on the Quinjet, although not why to a casual viewer it's just like yay it's the Hulk and I think all of it you know they reintroduce people they keep things like the Doctor Strange interlude to a minimum I think it really did have with quite a complex storyline a complex setting in some ways it's eye on the widest possible audience yeah 100% it's just a really enjoyable like Saturday afternoon space opera type vibe and it just works because of that and it doesn't stop it just keeps it rattles along at such a lovely pace there is the odd film in this sort of canon of films that has some you know longers in it but this really doesn't it's just like finger on the fast forward button the entire time and it just deliver like if you're bored by this bit another bit's coming up in a second that you'll love super colorful loads of jokes like we've mentioned earlier on even the smaller characters get these really interesting character moments and feel very well rounded and interesting and feel like oh i can follow this person a bit more and see what they're doing i mean it's hilarious even that you know you get a bit of an arc for Meek a character that does not at no point speaks but I feel like I know Meek somehow okay well there are those two well the mid credits and the post credit scene we've already talked about the former a bit but as I say it's a it's an image that sort of haunts me a bit now you know that contrast between how it felt when I first saw it and what came later and then right at the end problems of his own the brilliant bit with the Grandmaster being confronted by the people that used to work for him and fight for him that remains that same reaction looking at it and thinking how is he going to get out of this because he is going to get out of it because that's what the grandmaster does it's so bleakly comic in its lovely little own way i do love as well that they have left it like the grandmaster could come back we could get him back at some point i don't think we will but we could but then again we didn't think we'd get the red skull back and we did any guesses on how he might have got out of it feel like a level of bribery or he manages to somehow persuade them that he himself is a victim I feel like he's capable of doing that okay there's only one thing left for me to ask now Mick if you had the ability to crush Thor's hammer what would you use it for I think it's going to be crushing Thor's hammer isn't it there's not many other practical applications for that yeah I'm just thinking now I mean I don't think I would crush Thor's hammer I'm not hella I'm not horrible like that I wouldn't want to upset him like that I don't know just like to crush every (laughs) single knot I've ever wanted to crush in my life just do like a billion pistachios at the same time that's the thing with these questions people either want to attack politicians or they get practical (laughs) i've read everyone's wondering that wall i wanted to kick down if i was shang chi has been demolished so i've got nothing to add to that (laughs) no yeah i'm I'm sure you're all delighted to know that mick thank you and excelsior (laughs) excelsior if you've enjoyed this 
Don't forget you can buy more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.